you would turn again to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we want to continue working through this chapter. As I mentioned last week, we're going to take a little more time going through this chapter than we have the other chapters we're uh, going through in Daniel and Revelation and Acts, uh, simply because there's so much in our culture right now that is speaking uh, very much contrary to what we see in the scripture with regard to uh, these kinds of relationships. And so I think it would be good for us just to spend some time together thinking about them in fresh new ways, hopefully. And so uh, let me begin by just um, highlighting the fact that the foundation for uh, listening to a chapter like this is very, very important. Uh, How we listen to it, um, maybe you've seen the, uh, I don't know if it's a bumper sticker or sometimes it's a license plate or something like that will say something like, is it me or is it you? It's you, isn't it? And those kinds of um, things highlight the challenge of relationships. And that's what we find in 1 Corinthians 7 is a discussion of relationships. And whether you're talking about the marriage relationship or the parenting relationship or work relationships or friendships, just any relationship, um, it takes a real application of the gospel as the foundation to... Uh, both hear what the scripture says about those relationships and to put it into practice. And so, I don't know, when you think about the phrase, the gospel of grace, um, does that have any practical implication for you? I was thinking about that this morning. I think it's very easy for us to talk about applying the gospel and not really be real sure what we mean when we say, We need to apply the gospel. And and obviously, there's all kinds of ways to talk about that and to think about that. But let me just suggest uh, one way that came to mind. And there are three different um, words that are key. Uh, Forgiveness, uh, freedom, and focus. And so uh, in thinking about the foundation for trying to hear what's being said in 1 Corinthians 7 about relationships and trying to apply it, First of all, we have to apply the gospel of grace with regard to forgiveness, that all of us fail in every relationship to one degree or another, and the only way we can make progress in overcoming sin, is, as someone has said, is to fight it as a forgiven sin. Uh, we need to be very much aware of the fact that our sins have been uh, forgiven through the blood of Christ, that we are not condemned And therefore, even in the face of our failure and our sin, we stand loved and accepted and rejoiced over by God. And so seeking to make progress in fighting sin and in our relationship starts with understanding that we're forgiven. And secondly, it's freedom. And freedom is the idea that the gospel of grace says, not only have I been forgiven of my sin, but the power of sin has been broken in my life that I can actually make progress, that I'm no longer a slave to sin, according to Romans chapter 6, that in principle, I do not have to sin anymore. We do still sin, and we will sin until we're glorified, and yet in principle, the, the power of sin has been broken over our lives, and so we can have increasing freedom in various ways. And so God encourages us, when we read the Bible, to say, okay, as, as this convicts you of your sin as a believer, remember that you're forgiven. But also as it calls you to live differently, remember that you're, you've been set free to live differently and that you have the hope in God through Christ and the power in Christ to begin to live differently. And then the last word is focus, which means, uh, and this kind of relates to what I just said about, is it you or is it me? It's you, isn't it? Um, The Bible says the gospel of grace not only says you're forgiven, not only says you are free to move forward and make progress and obedience to God, but, but that your focus is not on what other people are doing, and it's not on whether or not you are being loved. The focus is on how God calls you to love, whether you're being loved or not. That's what grace does, right? Grace loves people even when they're not loving us. 
That's what God does. He loves us even though we have not loved him. And so to apply the gospel of grace means I rest in the forgiveness I've been given in Jesus. It means I have hope of growth and actually doing uh, what God calls me to do because of the freedom that we have in Christ. And my focus is not on what other people aren't doing or what they're doing to hurt me or not love me or whatever it might be, but my focus is on how am I to love the people in my life graciously um, because there is grace for that. And so that's helpful in relationships because it's very, our tendency, all of, all of us, whether we're talking about uh, marriage relationships, parenting, work relationships, friends, or whatever, it's very easy for us to hear something from the word and think, oh, I wish, I wish they heard that. I wish they did that. When God says, let's, uh, let's start with you and let's, let's have that focus, uh, lest, lest these kinds of discussions be um, more problematic. I think there's a real issue in reading your Bible, depending on how you read it, that it can make you more dissatisfied with the people around you and not give you the grace to love them. And that's because of how we're hearing it. If we're only hearing it as this is the way everyone else is supposed to be treating me, but they're not treating me that way, then I can actually not find the grace that I'm supposed to be finding through the scriptures because my focus is on what other people are or aren't doing. When God says, no, uh, entrust to me what they are or aren't doing, and look to me for what I call you to do in this situation. And certainly as husbands and wives, we definitely need to do just that. Well, what we want to do is we're going to look at a number of different things in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, Today we're going to read the first nine verses, and through this we're going to uh, work through probably this Sunday and next Sunday these main thoughts. Number one, physical intimacy may seem to be undesirable. We started that last week. We'll conclude that today. Physical intimacy is important in marriage. We also started that last week. We'll finish that today. But we're going to also move toward the reality that some are gifted to be celibate. They're gifted not to be married. Uh, but those who are not gifted to be as celibate should pursue marriage. And we're going to talk about that reality. And so let me read for us the first nine verses today, and um, we'll try to think through uh, how God is calling us to trust him and love in light of these verses. It says in verse one, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command." Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is the word of God. So as we mentioned last uh, week, Paul began the first part of Corinthians talking about um, issues in the church that were reported to him. And he was addressing things like division in the church, uh, the church worshiping celebrity pastors, so to speak, um, uh, putting more value on um, fancy preaching rather than the substance that was being preached. Uh, One man had his father's wife. Uh, They were taking each other to secular courts. And there was an issue, actually, of prostitution in the body. Now he's beginning to talk about the kinds of things that were actually asked him uh, when they sent him a letter. And so he's beginning to respond to their questions. And this question uh, that he's addressing appears to be along the lines of something like, and we're having to read between the lines, uh, something like, uh, is it more spiritual, is it more helpful spiritually to 
maybe not be married or not be involved in physical intimacy one way or another? Um, Should we maybe even divorce if we're married in order to be more spiritual? All these issues are coming into play here, and they're asking questions about what is really the best thing to do uh, as a Christian. Now that we're Christians, in light of the very, uh, what you might call, over-sexualized society we're in, just like in our country today, uh, what do we do to pursue holiness? And so in the first verse, he says, Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good, and by good... Uh, The implication is spiritually uh, beneficial, advantageous. It is good not to touch a woman, and that's a euphemism for having physical relationships. Uh, In their mind, it appears to be with regard, even with regard to marriage or even within marriage. And so he's responding, it appears to me, as it is in the ESV, where they put quotes around it as good for a man not to touch a woman, that he's responding to a statement of theirs. And he's highlighting uh, that this is what they're uh, struggling with. And so let me just remind us a little bit of what we talked about last week. And firstly, the implication is we can have wrong attitudes about the physical relationship that God has created when he created male and female and when he created uh, sex. Um, If you were to read chapter 6 again, uh, toward the end, as well as chapter 7, you could see that there are several different ideas, wrong ideas that he's addressing. One is that sex is just a bodily function like eating and drinking, and therefore it should be just as prolific as eating and drinking. Um, another attitude that's wrong is sex is good in whatever context you like, with whomever you like, and whenever you like. Or, sex of all kinds and all ways at all times should be defended to the death. That's the society we're living in right now in a lot of different ways. But, in chapter 7, you get into the totally opposite ditch. That's one ditch where the physical relationship is everything. The physical relationship is the ultimate thing in life. The other ditch is to say that it is something that should be totally avoided, whether you're married or not. That... Uh, it must be inherently evil because look at what is happening in our society or it's at least inclined to evil. It's something that, you know, it may not be inherently evil, but it is so hard to do right, it's going to end up uh, involving evil uh, one way or the other. And therefore, we just should avoid it altogether. And so you've got these ditches and Paul is addressing one ditch in chapter 6 and now he's addressing another ditch in chapter 7. And he's highlighting the fact that marriage is a gift from God and the physical relationship is a gift from God, a good gift. And we have to be careful of having wrong attitudes about it, whether it's one ditch or the other. The other implication that we highlighted last week is that uh, they were under the impression that the way you pursue holiness is by not doing certain things. Now, pursuing holiness at times does require that we not do certain things, but that's not the main purpose of holiness or the main way we uh, pursue holiness. It's by actually doing things. To love someone is to pursue their good, not just to not hit them or hurt them. It's actually to pursue the positive, not just to focus on the negative. Another implication that we touched on last week is that we just have to be careful when we read our Bibles, that to read them in context. I mentioned the fact that there are those who take verse 1 and argue for a celibate priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church, and that's a total misreading of what Paul is saying here. We have to read our Bibles well and read them in context. We also mentioned the fact that the issue of, of touching a woman or touching a man in terms of the uh, sexual relationship is, is a very relevant discussion in our day and time, just like it was in their day and time. And the basic principle is, the Bible says, that outside of marriage, we are not to engage in any kind of, any kind of activity that's going to uh, awaken our sexual desires, uh, either our own or other people's sexual desires. We're to avoid that outside of Marriage, and we touched on that last week as well. But in relationship to that, I want to raise one other question uh, in light of purity culture. 
And that question is, um, if someone else sins in this area of sexual sin, uh, is it my fault? Now, I raise that question because um, there are people that are really uh, taking to task um, what is being called purity culture. You may have read some of this or heard some of this. It's the idea around um, what was taking place back in the 90s, I guess, especially with Josh Harris and his book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and um, True Love Waits campaigns. There were purity pledges, purity rings, purity balls that father and daughters would go to, and there's a big uh, push toward um, this pledge of virginity up until marriage. And uh, since that time, uh, Josh Harris has not only... um, you know, basically recanted his book, but he's also walked away from the faith. And a lot of people have begun to critique um, the whole movement in various ways. And and one of the critiques is that the way it was often portrayed was, it it was portrayed in such a way that, that it was up to women to make sure that men don't sin. In terms of how they dress, or other things as well. And so the question is, is the sexual sin of others my fault? And the biblical answer is no. The sexual sins of others are not my fault. Why do I say that? Uh, James says in James 1, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. James does not say it's the other person's fault that you sin. But that doesn't mean that we don't have any responsibility. Uh, The Bible says to parents, do not provoke your children to anger. If they get angry, that's that's their sin, and they will will have to uh, give an answer to God for that. But if we as parents provoke them to anger, then our provoking is an issue. And that's why the Bible also talks about, in Proverbs 7, uh, women dressing as harlots and things like that. So it, it does imply that you can... Um, contribute to uh, being a a temptation to someone. It talks about men in 2 Timothy uh, captivating weak women. So it's on both sides of the issue that you can lead people, encourage people, uh, be a part of the temptation for other people. But that's different than saying that you're some kind of gatekeeper and it's up to you whether or not they sin or not. And so that's why I said early on, We always have to listen to the Bible and say, okay, what is God saying about my role and the other person? And let's not confuse the two. And so that's just one thing to realize is that uh, we all have our responsibilities, but we're all responsible before God about with regard to how we respond to people. And so that's one of the implications here. The second verse talks about immoralities and each man having his own wife and each woman having her own husband. Paul here makes it clear that marriage is the norm. And that um, it's the norm because of the real temptation to immorality. And that marriage is meant to be a kind of remedy, as Calvin would say, to that. A kind of uh, protection against that. And so uh, part of the implication here is that we not only have to be aware of wrong attitudes toward this, but also be aware of wrong uh, activities. And so you read through 1 Corinthians 6, you read through Leviticus 18, and it's very clear that God says there is a boundary that we're not to go outside of in various ways. Um, Like I mentioned last week, C.S. Lewis talked about the fact that the most unpopular Christian virtue is chastity. Uh, He said... Uh, the Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. And he says that's one of the rules that the world uh, doesn't like and our flesh doesn't like. Um, And he would say that either is an indication that Christianity has gone wrong, if there's something wrong with that, or our appetites for... Uh, physical intimacy has gone wrong. And he talks about the fact that, you know, if you want to get people together, you can have um, a strip tease of sorts. But he uses the illustration, what would you think if somebody began to 
uh, in a certain country uh, gather a large crowd by simply, simply bringing out a covered dish like we have right here. And people would cheer and yell, and you would you know, slowly uncover that dish. And there's, you know, he would say a mutton chop on there, or a piece of bacon. And people just go wild. He would say, uh, the people in that country have um, there's something wrong with their appetite for food. There's, there's something off with that appetite because it's gone to a place that it should not go. So he says, there's nothing to be ashamed of in enjoying your food. There would be everything to be ashamed of if half the world made food the main interest of their lives and spent their time looking at pictures of food and dribbling and smacking their lips. And so he's highlighting the fact that um, sex is a good, good thing. It's a gift from God that's meant to be enjoyed in marriage. But the world and our sinful flesh has made it the ultimate thing and has perverted it so that our appetites are far from what they should be. And so we have to be careful of that in the world in which we live because that was the world in which the Corinthians were living too. They were living in a society where uh, that appetite was way out of whack and the temptation was great. And so, um, but even in light of that, we have to understand something, even as we think about all the ways in which this can go wrong, all the ways in which this appetite can be inappropriate, we still have to come back to the reality that in Jesus there is forgiveness and in Jesus there is freedom. Just like we said at the end of the message last week. In verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he's highlighting the various ways in which uh, there can be wrong practices in this area, as well as other wrong practices. But then he says in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Getting back to the whole purity culture thing, uh, another one of the criticisms of, of purity culture was it gave the impression that if you failed before marriage to stay pure, you were damaged goods for the rest of your life. And then you could never have the marriage that you could have had. You, will, you could never have uh, physical intimacy that you uh, could have had, that you have been, you've just ruined everything if that happens before marriage. Now, obviously, there are probably people who uh, were trying to encourage people to realize that there are real consequences to sex outside of marriage. And there are. And the Bible talks about it very, very clearly and boldly and says there are real consequences to sex outside of marriage. But that's not the same thing as saying, and you've just ruined everything. There's no hope for you now. There's no hope for your marriage. Um, but Paul makes it very, very clear that such for some of you says, no, you can be forgiven from that. You were washed. You were sanctified. means you can be free from that. You can, you can still have a wonderful marriage. You're not damaged goods. It's a very, very important thing to understand. So we don't want to think that just because the Bible says there are serious consequences when we get outside of the boundaries God establishes in this area, we don't want to go to the point of saying, and that means uh, we want to scare people into thinking obedience, so to speak, by saying, and you'll never be able to recover from this. That's going further than what the Bible says. And we never go further than what the Bible says. The Bible says you can be forgiven. The Bible says you can be restored. And so that's important for us to realize and see. And that's the implication of what Paul is saying, because probably everybody in the church in Corinth was coming out of that kind of lifestyle. He's saying, because of immoralities, yes, you should repent of that. And you should um, have your own husband and your own wife. And you should do what I'm calling you to do, and you should expect it to be wonderful. 
Because he's talking to people that every single one of them, probably not a single one of them was pure when they got married in that culture because that was the way it was. And so the gospel is a gospel of hope. And so he encourages them uh, to realize, yes, we need to repent of these things, but we also need to repent uh, with hope. Now, something that's been going on in our culture um, just this week, the U.S. House of Representatives has uh, voted to codify same-sex marriage uh, under federal law. Uh, Obviously, that is spoken against when uh, Paul says each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Uh, it's a man and a woman. It's not a man and a man or a woman and a woman. And there are only males and females. And just recently, the University of Pennsylvania uh, nominated swimmer, swimmer Leah Thomas, who is a trans um, athlete, uh, a man who believes or at least is presenting himself as a woman, has presented uh, him as the um, NCAA Woman of the Year, or at least to be considered for it. That's the culture in which we live. It's it's totally against what Paul is is saying here. And for us, it's a reminder that we have to ask ourselves, what is the real authority for what we believe? Is it what the news tells us? Is it what our government tells us? Is Is it what we feel? Is it what we desire? And the Bible says our authority for what is true and what is right cannot be our desires and how we feel. It's kind of like um, I told the story about the farmer who taught his son how to plow. And he said um, he's plowing with an animal, not with a tractor. And he says, I want you to find uh, something off in the distance and and I want you to head toward it. And that that will help keep you uh, going straight. And so um, he leaves his son for about an hour and he comes back and he finds that this uh, this young man has just plowed all kinds of uh, crazy rows, and and uh, his dad comes up and says, "Son, what are you doing?" And the son says, "What do you mean? I, I did what you told me to do. I I set my eyes on that cow in the distance. The only problem is that cow just kept moving, you know, and that's the only problem. That's a great illustration of our feelings and our desires. It's just like in the in the uh, gender world right now, there is a kind of gender identity that says, I am whatever I feel like I am today. I may be something different tomorrow, just depending on how I feel. And that's a terrible place to be. And that's a terrible place to train our children or try to bring our children up in a world that says, okay, decide what you want to be today based on how you feel, based on what you think is right or true That's why we need something that doesn't change. And the Bible is what doesn't change. It says in Psalm 19, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And so our our constant is God and his word. And if we're going to plow a straight line, we have to keep our eyes fixed on him. I mentioned last week that the implications of Paul saying each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband, uh, in the context, in light of immoralities, the, the implication would be pursue marriage sooner rather than later, right? If, if part of the purpose of getting married is to, uh, as a remedy against immorality, then the implication would be we should pursue marriage sooner rather than later, whereas in our society, uh, People are getting married later and later in life for various reasons. Sometimes it's for career. Sometimes it's other issues. Uh, I've heard one man uh, talk about his dad who recommended to older uh, uh, young people. He, he would talk to young, uh, older men who weren't married, and he'd walk up to them and say, so and so, uh, let me give you some advice. What you need to do is you need to uh, ask her name and marry her. Now, that was an overstatement, right? But he was trying to make a point that let's not make this too complicated. Let's, let's uh, think about how we can move you toward marriage. Anyway, we'll talk more about that probably next week. But it's just something to think about because we've, in our culture, we've gotten away from the idea that marriage is a good thing. We've gotten away from the idea 
that maybe for me personally, that is a remedy that I need to pursue. And we don't think enough about that, but we allow other things uh, to trip us up. Well, obviously the bottom line is that all sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman is wrong. And, um, and yet we live in a society where um, people say, you know, like I said earlier, uh, physical act intimacy is just like eating and drinking. It's just a healthy thing. It's healthy to, to do this. It's uh, unhealthy to repress it. And uh, C.S. Lewis, again, would say, you know, uh, advertisement, advertisements and all kinds of things argue that, the, uh, that uh, ideas of health, normality, youth, frankness, and good humor are associated with just being free in this area. And he says the reason why it's so powerful is that there's truth in it. There's truth in the lie. What God has created in sex is a good thing. But the lie is that it's good and healthy no matter what, in every situation, with every person. And the Bible says, no, it's not good and healthy in every situation with every person at any time. It's only with, in accordance to or accordance with the guidelines that God has given. Well, if you look again at verses 3 and 4, let me just touch again just briefly on what we mentioned last week. He says, The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority uh, over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The thing that comes across there is that it's very much mutual. It's a mutual thing, which is totally different than the culture that um, Paul was addressing. The culture there was very much uh, man-dominated. And the only person who had any rights, or at least the greatest rights, were men. And women were second-class citizens at best, and sometimes nothing more than slaves. And so the whole idea of a mutuality between husband and wife would have been totally foreign to the culture of that time. And as I mentioned last week, um, Paul is highlighting the fact that physical intimacy is important. These verses highlight the fact that in marriage, this is an important thing. And yet it's not all important. It's not the most important thing. It's not the highest good. Um, But there is a duty involved. That's the implication, right? Um, The word fulfill uh, means to pay back or render. The word for um, duty means debt. There's a debt to be paid. There's a debt that's owed. Um, the idea of debt in Romans uh, 13 is the idea where it says, render to all what is due them, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Do I owe you anything? I do. I owe you love. Do you owe me anything? Yes, you owe me love. According to the scriptures, we owe one another love. That's an obligation. That's a duty that God calls us to. It's not a duty we can fulfill on our own. We need God's grace, but it still is a duty. And he's saying within marriage, there's a duty. There's an obligation to recognize that there's a role of physical intimacy that's for the good of both people. And it should be um, pursued in light of that. It's an issue of love. And when he talks about having authority over your spouse's body and your spouse having authority over your body, what kind of authority is he talking about? He's talking about the authority of ownership. Why would he be talking like that? I mean, um, if I were to ask Josh, uh, who has authority over your car? Uh, You'd say, well, I guess I do because it's mine. I own it. So there's there's the authority we have over one another in marriage because we... We belong to one another. How does the Bible talk about that belonging? It talks about by saying uh, they are no longer two, but one flesh. We're not two separate people. We're, we're one. So my foot belongs to me because it's part of me. My wife belongs to me and I belong to her because we're part of one another. We're, there's a spiritual relationship there. That's why the Song of Solomon says it describes the relationship between 
the lovers there, the husband and wife there, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. There's a belonging. And so it's that kind of authority. It's that kind of power. It means that um, we share something and we have an obligation to pursue love, um, but it's not to be done in a way where we're dominating the other person, we're abusing the other person, or anything like that. Um, I mean, ultimately, the physical relationship in marriage is meant to point to heaven. Ever notice that we talk about consummating our marriages, and we talk about uh, the coming kingdom of God as the consummation of the ages. That's because the Bible says the relationship between Christ and his church is just like the relationship between a husband and a wife. And that's the real mystery, Paul says. And so um, there's going to be a marriage supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there's going to be a great consummation. And the relationship between husband and wife and the pleasure that they have together in this relationship is meant to point to the pleasure that we're going to have with God. It says in Psalm 16, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And so God intended the marriage relationship to be a picture of Christ in the church. And the physical part of it is an important part of picturing the relationship between Christ and the church and the ultimate joy and pleasure he's going to give us forever and ever. That's an amazing part of the picture that's being painted here. And so in light of that, in verse 5, Paul says, stop depriving one another. And then he gives some guidelines. He gives basically three guidelines. He says um, sexual abstinence in marriage is is not a good thing. But he says if you're going to to do it, um, make sure, number one, it's only by agreement, that both of you want to do it. Secondly, make sure that it's for a good purpose, like prayer. And thirdly, make sure it's only for a limited time, that it's not forever. It's not, okay, we're not going to do this ever again for our spiritual good. And so it gives them some guidelines. And so the application of that is uh, we can ask the question in marriage, um, is there a place for the spouse Uh, to refuse intimacy or to ask not to be intimate. And I I would say um, only if it's by agreement, only if it's really pursuing love, and only if um, there's a good reason for it. And so it's basically, um, I have to remember that I have an obligation here. And if I'm asking not to fulfill this obligation, then I have to ask myself, do I have a good reason for it? And can we work this out as a couple, uh, one way or the other? I bring this up because there are cases that I've heard of um, wives uh, feeling like their husbands were being unreasonable in what they were asking for or requiring. Uh, I've heard of husbands Uh, demanding things that they shouldn't demand and those kinds of things. And so Paul highlights, I think, here that this is a mutual thing. This isn't where you demand something. This isn't where you simply refuse something. This is where you come together as a husband and wife and you pursue love, but you live with each other in an understanding way and you avoid things that aren't really loving and so there's a lot more that can be said about this. It doesn't really need to be said in this context, but it just it lays out some, uh, I think, a way. Paul is laying out the reality that um, there needs to be communication and we need to be truly pursuing love in this relationship just like we do in other relationships as well. And that the, the physical intimacy in marriage is something that's to be pursued as often as both desire it, as they agree to it, and so that neither one is being truly deprived of it. That being said, there's the question of what about special situations where the physical relationship is hindered by things outside a couple's control? What about that? Uh, You may have heard of B.B. Warfield. Uh, He and his wife, he was a theologian, a Reformed theologian. Uh, He got married. He and his wife went to Germany. 
I think it was on their honeymoon, and they were walking in the mountains one day. A storm came up, a thunderstorm. Um, I don't know if she actually was struck by lightning. doesn't sound like she was actually struck by lightning, but it might have been very, very close. But anyway, whatever happened, it really messed her nervous system up. And she never fully recovered from that point on. And she was so severely traumatized that she spent the rest of her life as an invalid of sorts. So obviously that affected their relationship from their honeymoon on in terms of what that physical relationship was going to look like. You think about uh, someone like uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, who as a teenager, unmarried, dives into the Chesapeake Bay, uh, becomes paralyzed from the neck down, and yet she later on marries Ken Tata, and they just celebrated their 40th wedding anniversary. So what does their relationship look like? Uh, I assume it doesn't, it's not a normal relationship, right? So it, it can't fulfill everything as God intended, but that doesn't mean, like we said, that part of the relationship isn't essential and it isn't ultimate. There's much more to the marriage relationship than that. Um, in heaven, there's not going to be any physical intimacy, Jesus said, even though in Islam, that is what heaven is, but not in in the Christian view of things from the Bible. But whether, I mean, what Paul is arguing here is that there's grace through the physical intimacy of marriage. There's grace through it. But if that isn't able to be something that can happen, there's grace apart from it too. If you hear what I'm saying, uh, Jesus could say, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Um, Paul could say, um, in verse 5, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Um, it raises the question, isn't self-control a fruit of the Spirit? In Galatians 5 it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And there were people in Corinth who evidently were arguing things like, well, you know what, we don't really need the physical relationship in marriage because we can just depend on the Spirit. Spirit is the one who gives us self-control. That's not what Paul says here. He doesn't say, just pray more, just depend on the Holy Spirit, not when you don't need to in terms of... uh, having a relationship that can be fulfilled in that way. Calvin, if you read what Calvin says about this, he says, uh, if we basically say something like, but we must resist Satan, they must be sought from the Lord, things like you know, the power to uh, exercise self-control. He says, in vain shall we beseech the Lord to assist us in a rash attempt. What does he mean by a rash attempt? By ignoring the means of grace. Um, the Bible is a means of grace, prayer is a means of grace, but he's arguing that Paul is saying in marriage, the physical relationship is a means of grace. And so he says, if you wish to shut them out and keep them back, it becomes us to oppose them by the remedy, talking about temptations, pushing them back, opposing them, by the remedy which the Lord has furnished us. Those therefore act a rash part who give up the use of the marriage bed. So what is he saying? He's saying, if you have in marriage the use of the marriage bed, it is a means of grace in fighting temptation. Now, if you have special circumstances, like your wife is paralyzed, or she's sick, or whatever it might be, like I just described, then there is grace. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. I mean, people who are imprisoned in in, uh, some communist country or something don't have access to the Bible. Uh, They have different grace than those of us who have a Bible right in front of us every day and don't read it. So there's grace depending on the situation. And so Paul says, uh, recognize that this is a means of grace in fighting temptation and use it if you can, unless there's some special circumstance. Well, lastly, in verse 6, he says, But this I say by way of concession, 
not of command. What is Paul saying there when he says, I say this by way of concession? The idea of concession means I'm sort of meeting you halfway. The question is, is it okay to avoid physical intimacy in marriage for spiritual purposes? And he says, I'm, gonna, I'm kind of meeting you halfway by giving you some guidelines, some strict guidelines, only by agreement, short of period of time, very good reason for it. So that's by concession, but not by command. He's saying, I'm not commanding you ever to abstain from physical intimacy in your marriage. I'm not recommending it. I'm not commanding it. But if you decide to do it, make sure you do it within these guidelines. And so for me, it's interesting when you think about all that Paul says in that verse and throughout the chapter, you realize that at some points in the chapter, he says, this is the Lord's command. It isn't, there's no negotiating here. But at other times he says, uh, this is my, quote, opinion of sorts. And so when you think about how he's dealing with these very practical questions with the Corinthians, sometimes he's saying, this is what is required. Sometimes he's saying, I think this would be wise. Sometimes he says, it's up to you. Whatever you think is good. And so that's why I think as we go through this, hopefully you'll see that basically our, the decision-making in the Christian life is about doing what is right and wise and good. God hasn't legislated everything. Even in this instance, Paul didn't come out right out and say, don't ever do this. He simply says, if you do it, make sure you do it wisely and in this way. And so there's some freedom there even in this uh, issue that he's dealing with. Um, Let me just give you a a few examples in 1 Corinthians 7 as we wrap up here. When I talk about um, doing what is right, look at verse 10. He says, But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. It's basically a command. In verse 19 he says, Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. So there are certain things that God has been very clear on that we are to do or not do. And Paul says, you need to obey that, no matter what your circumstances are. But there are other situations in this chapter where he's highlighting we need to do what is wise based on what the Bible says, the principles that are given, and a lot of other things to consider. Um, And that's also in the boundaries of what God says is right. If you look at verse 20... He says, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. And yet if you read the context, it says, he will say to those who are slaves, but if you can get free, get free. But I thought you said each man must remain in the condition that he's in. Well, it depends on the circumstances. There's a principle here that needs to be applied, but it may apply differently in different situations. He says in verse 26, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. He's, he's saying, I think it would be wise for you guys not to get married right now because there is an impending persecution coming. It's going to be harder on you married people. But then he goes on to say, but if you get married, you will not have sinned. So there's a difference between sinning against God's command and the issue of wisdom and saying you need to consider what would be wise Uh, in light of what God's word says and in light of the circumstances. And then what is good? Some decisions are to be determined by our preferences and our desires. In 1 Corinthians 7.36, it says, If any man thinks he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. Let him do what he wishes. What do you want? What, what do you think is the good thing? What do you desire? You want red or green? The red or green car? Do you, what do you want? You're ordering your uh, lunch? Uh, you don't have to pray about that. You can just pick what you want. He um, goes on in verse 39. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. To whom she wishes. That's preference. That's desire but only in the Lord. So there is some boundary there. doesn't mean whatever I desire. So there are some right and wrong boundaries. There's even some boundaries with regard to what do I really feel is wise, which might influence what you order sometimes. 
But then it comes down to many times in certain situations, what is your desire? What is your wish? And so Paul is counseling the Corinthians with regard to very complex and difficult issues. But he's saying God hasn't legislated it all for us. He intends us to pray for wisdom and to apply the word of God in those circumstances. Well, ultimately, as I said before, when you listen to things like this and you seek to apply it, and we'll talk more about the issue of being single and whether you should pursue marriage or not and what that might look like next week, ultimately, whatever we, we find as our circumstance, the foundation for everything is the issue of the gospel of grace. Um, am I resting in the forgiveness that God has given me in Christ, even though I fail in these relationships in various ways? Am I trusting God for the power to be different, to free me and to help me to grow where I need to? And is my focus on graciously loving the other person? Or am I focused on trying to get them to do what they're supposed to be doing? And Paul never commands the woman to try to get her husband to do these things or commands the man to demand that his wife do these things. He speaks to the wife, he speaks to the husband, he speaks to children, all those things, and the implication is we are to take responsibility for what God calls us to because of the gospel of grace. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We pray that it will somehow be practical and helpful to us by hearing it as you intended to be heard, to hear it uh, in light of the gospel, that your word exposes our sin and our failure, and yet we are to run to the cross and, and know that we are forgiven, that there is no condemnation. Your word also um, teaches us what is right and good and, and what we should be doing, what we should be pursuing. And the gospel of grace encourages us to know that there is power to be different. There is power to grow and to take steps in the right direction. And your word reminds us that what you call us to do is not something that we try to force other people to do, to love us in certain ways, but we are to look to you for we for what we need to do to love others, whether they're loving us like they should or not. That the, the focus is to be on you enabling us to love graciously, whatever the situation might be. And so I pray that as we think about our relationships, not just our marriage relationships, but all of our relationships, I pray that we would see how important the gospel of grace and applying the gospel of grace is. And may you help us to do that in greater uh, ways this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.